Blog Talk Radio. I'm a truth terrorist. I'm a knowledge gangster. I'm a black history hitman. I'm a live killer urban gorilla. I gotta be a roughneck. Free the Black Panthers. FCBP. Stand for Free the Black Panthers. If up the black police. That 13th Amendment. Trying to make a slave of me. You can like my body, can't trap my mind, not forever be free. Okay, free the Black Panthers, FCBP, stand for free the Black Panthers, and fuck the black police. Feds infiltrated our movements for black leadership roles, but we still here, in the bill here, up coin tail pro. Show, they got me started, lying hearted, I'm the new Mufasa. And I'm all about Umoja, first in Guzu Saba. Let's bring back the black families, we need our father. Single mama, son and daughter, that's root of the problem. Wise up, we wise up. Unity is so powerful. Black banks, black schools, black on black power moves. You tell a lie, you think this shit won't be televised. Black power, be scared guys, that be standing there like they paralyzed. Huh? We say fuck the system, cause we above the system. We keep ARs and pistols, shotguns that's worth the crystal. But that's for self-defense, make sure we have no issues. Be sure to leave it at the door if you have it with you. This for them freedom fighters that lost their freedom. Until they freedom, we screaming carpe diem. This for the general. King Khalid Muhammad, we gon' make your day a holiday. I fuck me, promise. Free the Black Panthers, FCBP. Stand for free the Black Panthers. And fuck the Black Police, that 13th Amendment. Tryna make a slave of me. You can like my body, can't trap my mind, not to ever be free. Okay, free the Black Panthers, FCBP. Stand for free the Black Panthers. And fuck the Black Police. Feds infiltrated our movements for black leadership roles, but we still here, in the bill here, up coin tail pro. RBG, 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 RBG. My sisters, my brothers, the council, the elders, that's really all I need. We suited, we booted, don't do it, you stupid, we head to the armory. Black woman and goddess, regardless, my heart just don't fuck with misogyny, foolish that don't tolerate it. Melanated, so you gotta hate it. But rock up up another conversation. Trump finna get inaugurated, damn. Unify or die, nbpp.org. First and foremost, the new Black Panther Party, no, no other Black Panther Party, we're not violent. We are for self-defense and self-determination. And the most violent group in this country are the police. What is taking place by the police departments to black people across this country is ethnic cleansing and genocide. It has escalated since the day that Barack Obama was inaugurated in 2008. We have a, 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 a people who are only 13% of the population, yet we make up 80% of the prisons. We have 50% unemployment rate in the black community, and it's actually even more than that because they're not counting our people that are in the prisons. The 13th Amendment said you could not be made a slave or indigenous servant unless you commit a crime. The 14th Amendment forced our people to be subjects of this government. We never had any say in that. We need our own nation.
Good afternoon, everyone. We're going to get started momentarily. If you're still grabbing your food, feel free to go ahead and get a good plate. The food is amazing today. Um, before I continue, actually, can we just give a round of applause to our Director of Events, Peggy Zamba, for helping us all throughout <laughs> Diversity Week and making sure that we had wonderful lunches and dinner all week long. Um, so thankful for her department and her, and her assistance. Um, this is our keynote. I'm so glad that we made it to this point, and I'm very honored and uh, thankful to be able to introduce Professor McMurtry Trubb. And I'd like to do her a little justice by reading a bit of her bio. Um, if I was to read a full bio of her expertise and ex experience, it would be several pages long. Um, but I just have a few paragraphs that I'd like to share with everyone as we get started before she gives us our keynote. Terry McMurtry Chubb is a visiting distinguished professor of law at UIC John Marshall Law School. She researches, teaches, and writes in areas of critical rhetoric, discourse and genre analysis, and legal history. McMurtry Chubb is a leader in designing curricula to facilitate diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. Prior to returning to academia, Professor McMurtry Chubb was a civil litigation associate at a mid-sized law firm in Des Moines, Iowa. At the time she joined the firm, she was the first person of color ever to be hired there and one of two African-American women in the entire state of Iowa in private practice. Amazing. She practiced in areas of insurance defense, employment discrimination, and employee benefits involving the, the Employment Retirement Income Security Act, other, otherwise known as ERISA. Before entering private practice, McMurtry Chubb became the first American Af African-American woman hired as a law clerk for the 5th Judicial District of Iowa. Professor McMurtry Chubb served as the president of the Association of Legal Writing Directors from 2015 to 2016, becoming the first person of color to ever head a national legal writing organization. She is the author of numerous publications, including the book, Legal Writing in the Disciplines, A Guide to Legal Writing Mastery, and is a contributor to feminist judgments, rewritten opinions of the United States Supreme Court. In 2019, Terry was awarded the 2018 Teresa Godwin Feltz Award for scholarship in legal communication for her article, The Rhetoric, the Rhetoric of Race, Redemption, and Will Contest, Inheritance as Reparations in John Grisham's Sycamore Row which was published in 2018. And as some of the students here know, she's also um, an LS2 professor as well as doing the elective course, Critical Race Feminism. I've only heard wonderful things from all of the students that have been able to participate in our class and we're happy to have her as a visiting distinguished uh, professor here this semester. Please welcome Professor McMurtry Trump. <laughs> Hello. Hello. <laughs> All right, I have some thank yous. I want to thank our wonderful Dean, Darby Dickerson, for uh, creating the environment that helps us to make magic here every day. Um, I want to thank my fantastic colleagues and the stellar students who I've had the opportunity to interact with uh, this year, uh, who have made my, my time here wonderful. Um, and last but not least, um, I want to thank uh, Dean Tanya Luma for this opportunity, who I call Dean Tanya Luminous. So, um, <laughs> all right. So I come from a culture that uh, utilizes call and response. So I want you to repeat after me. 
My destiny destiny. is tied up in your destiny. So today I'm going to talk to you a little bit about rethinking race, redemption, and reparations. And with most things, I want to start with a story. But the story is about history and memory. So um, one of the people who is very important in my life and in my husband's life, uh, his name is Dr. Uzi Brown. He um, taught us. My husband was a a student at Morehouse College. I was a student at Spelman College. and Dr. Brown kind of knew us before we were us. He's known us since we were 18. So um, when we, we went back to Atlanta, um, my husband was teaching at Morehouse, and we decided we were going to take Dr. Brown out for dinner. So Dr. Brown was really excited that two former students were going to take him out for dinner, and he promptly told us that he was going to order everything on the menu. He was going to order appetizers, dinner, dessert. We were like, let's do it, Dr. Brown. So we were talking. This was shortly after 2016, and Dr. Brown said, um, you know, I'm really kind of upset. He's from a small town called Calpin, South Carolina, and he said people are talking about slavery and Jim Crow, particularly Jim Crow, as if it were history, but this is memory for me. Um, and so I want to talk to you about the tension between history and memory. Um, my first year of college was the year of Rodney King, and I remember my future husband and I, then my boyfriend, Um, We're in a classroom building, and I remember looking out over the quad, and there were people running. And they were running because the verdict had just, uh, or not the verdict, that the the video had just been released um, of Rodney King. Um, Actually, it was the verdict that had been released, and um, there was no exoneration. Everyone thought, you know, this was a video. We saw this man being beaten. Um, and there would be some justice, right? Finally, it was documented, and there wasn't. And I remember, um, again, I was at Stella, my husband was at Morehouse, this is Atlanta University Center, and the Atlanta University Center is in southwest Atlanta, and it is, um, well, it's been gentrified now, but it used to be a definitive, well, it used to be a very white place, then it was a very black place, and now it's back to being a very white place. But at the time we were there, Um, You could only get there through uh, one freeway exit, and so the police had locked down that entire freeway exit, and so nobody was allowed in and no one was allowed out. And there were police in full riot gear um, preventing us from leaving campus. We had curfews. We couldn't be together in groups of more than three because that would have been a gang. So we were on complete lockdown. I remember having this surreal moment um, where I was looking at the riots in L.A., and I was looking out my window, and I, there were police in full riot gear outside of my window, and there were police in full riot gear on the television. And again, this is uh, not history. This is memory. And finally, I want to talk about, uh, as a means of introduction, there's a young scholar. His name is Saeed Jones. Um, he is a queer black man. And he wrote a book called How We Fight for Our Lives. Um, and he talks about, it's a memoir, and he talks about in the memoir how his coming of age began when he, uh, he grew up in Texas and he witnessed um, the news footage of a man named James Byrd being lynched in the 1990s. James Byrd was drugged behind the back of a car. Um, and then he also subsequently learned about Matthew Shepard, who was a gay uh, man who was, uh, suffered a brutal death. And Saeed Jones says, and I quote, in those two instances I learned that it was not okay to be black or to be gay. So history versus memory. So the handout that I asked uh, Dean Luma to give to you all is a a plantation record from the Joseph M. James Plantation. 
Um, and so what we know from historians of the antebellum South is that um, plantations with 20 or more slaves were the wealthiest of plantations. They had the wealthiest of planters. This particular plantation, um, Joseph and James had about four plantations. This um, record is from his plantation called Cookshay. I believe this plantation was in Arkansas. Um, and he had just 50 enslaved individuals on this plantation. Um, so keep that in your head. 20 or more slaves were the, more, uh, were the wealthiest of planters. We know from historian Edward Baptist and his sweeping muscular uh, history um, of slavery and global capitalism, the half has never been told, that came out in 2014, that slavery um, was a capitalist endeavor that built a U.S. economy, particularly cotton cultivation and cotton um, production. And so I want you to think about that too, that cotton, um, by the 1860s, the U.S. was the global provider of cotton, the global provider of cotton. Another historian, Flynn Beckert, um, puts it in the context of a global economy um, where Baptist is focusing on production and labor. Uh, Beckert is focusing on the U.S. and the constellation of countries that participated in cotton um, sales and production. So we are the leader. So about the, this handout. So I want you to look at this handout, again, a plantation record. On one side, you will see um, the valuation of enslaved individuals on the plantation, and on the other side, you will see um, how, many how much cotton in pounds, in pounds, in pounds, each person picked. So I want to give you some numbers here for context. The value of cotton in 1857, uh, which is what this particular record is from, cotton sold for approximately 12 and a half cents in 1857 per pound. This record um, is an illustration of the amount of cotton picked during this particular week. Um, on the other side, let's see here if I can uh, pull this up for you. For those of you that don't have a copy, I'll pull it up here. So this record is from uh, November 22, 1857. And here you see all of the enslaved individuals on the left-hand side and the amount of cotton that they each picked in pounds. So as of this date, November 22, 1857, the enslaved had picked 84,326 pounds of cotton this number down here, 84,326 pounds of cotton. Keep in mind, this was just in one field, in one plantation, um, and Joseph and James had about four or five plantations. So just in this one field, 84,326 pounds of cotton that went for 12 and a half cents. In 1857, the value of that cotton was $10,532.91 in 1857. The present value of that money is $311,000, and forty cents in 2020. So we're talking about $300,000, and the year is not yet over. 84,000 pounds of cotton as of November 22nd. 
Um, and that's just for one of, of Joseph and James's plantations. If you look on the other side of this handout, you will see how the enslaved individuals are valued at the beginning of the year and the end of the year and their ages um, and their valuation. So in the 1850s, where you see this huge cotton boom, um, enslaved individuals were going for the top prices that they would go for during this era. A prime field hand, which was a black man between the ages of um, 18 and 33, um, would go for $1,200. This is $1,200 in 1857 money. The present value of that money is $35,000. So $35,000 per person, huge amount. The total amount of, the total value of the enslaved persons at the plantation in 1857 was $31,900. The present value of that money is about $945,000. So between slaves and the value of cotton at this plantation, um, as of November of 1857, the present value of one of Joseph M. James's plantations was $1.3 million, $1.3 million. I want to bring your attention to Ella. Ella is eight. At the beginning of 1857, she is valued at $500. At the end of 1857, she is valued at $600. I want to bring your attention to Ella because look at the amount of cotton an eight-year-old is picking in pounds, 30 pounds, 42 pounds, 57 pounds, 62 pounds, 25 pounds, 77 pounds. Ella is eight, and that looks to be the year, at least on the Joseph M. James plantation, um, that children were put out into the field for labor. So history and memory. So the question is, who bears responsibility? Are only the named descendants of the enslaved deserving of payment for their ancestors' labor? Or are the whole of descendants of enslaved Africans who suffered under the regimes of white supremacy, patriarchy, capitalism, and imperialism deserving of payment for their ancestors' labor? And as you think about these questions, I want you to think about this is a global economy. Cotton built the U.S. economy, the economy that we participate in today. Cotton built this. I cannot stress this to you enough, that financial instruments such as mortgages were created during this time to deal with the mortgaging of the enslaved. This was a credit economy. Contract law changed between... Um, the 1850s and the 1860s and 70s um, from a title theory of contract to a will theory of contract to deal with expectation damages based on the cotton trade. The commodities market was built on cotton. And for every plantation that was making millions of dollars, there were more than 50 enslaved individuals on them. So who bears responsibility? Who is deserving of payment? 
So I did extensive research on reparations litigation, on the cases that have been litigated uh, dealing with reparations. And so nomos is the universe in which legal reasoning functions. It is a Western concept that comes from ancient Greek and Rome. And for the purposes of my talk today, it governs the procedural and substantive rules of the game for reparations litigation, nomos. So I want to talk to you about several cases uh, in the litigation universe. And, uh, you know, I, I have a, an abiding love for the individuals who brought these cases, but none so much as for the plaintiffs in the first case that I studied, which is called Johnson v. McAdoo. And this case was handed down in 1916. I love the plaintiffs in Johnson v. McAdoo because they were enslaved between 1859 and 1868, um, and they're bringing this case. So they were children at the time uh, that they were emancipated, and I just, I just uh, admire their swagger because in 1916 they said, look, in 1865 the U.S. Department of Treasury seized and taxed as internal revenue tax on raw cotton, Cotton that they, these individuals, the plaintiffs, had cultivated and harvested during slavery. Now, I want you to wrap your mind around this. And I wish I had um, a bigger document camera because I would bring, I would have brought my book, um, The History of America in 100 Maps. This is an excellent book, um, and it has 100 maps that tell the story of U.S. history. My favorite map in that book is a map, um, it's a military map uh, that was drawn for General Grant. And the military map shows the entire South and charts Grant's march to the sea. But it has um, pictures of where every single plantation is and every single settlement of enslaved is. And the reason for that is because Grant gave specific instructions to his troops, hands off, because this is money. Don't burn the cotton plantations and don't kill the enslaved individuals. This is important. So in 1865, the U.S. State Department of Treasury seized and taxed as internal uh, revenue tax on raw cotton, cotton that the individuals in Johnson v. McAdoo had cultivated and harvested during slavery. They say, um, so the amount of money collected as a result of the tax was, are you ready, $68,072,388.99. This was 1865 money, $68 million in 1865. And my plaintiffs, my favorite swagger-filled plaintiffs say, you know what, we get an equitable lien on that because we, we helped to cultivate that cotton. The case originated in the then Supreme Court of the District of Columbia, which dismissed it on the U.S. Attorney's uh, motion to dismiss. And of course, the plaintiff appellants appealed to the D.C. Court of Appeals, which upheld the lower court ruling on grounds that, get this, the plaintiff appellant should have named the U.S. government as a defendant and not the Secretary of Treasurer as the steward of this money. But the catch was that they wouldn't have been able to sue the U.S. government without its consent. <laughs> so they lose, they lose, they lose. And I'm here to tell you that this universe of reparations litigation is extremely racialized, and we're going to go through that. So in the Greek and, and Roman tradition, so remember right now we're talking about litigation. So I studied these, these uh, reparations cases. So in the, group in, um, in the Greek and Roman tradition, um, we argue we're litigators and we embody um, either implicitly or explicitly Aristotle's persuasive appeals. 
So we go through pathos, um, ethos, and logos. But again, the nomos in which this takes place is racialized. Don't believe me? Let's talk about it. So here are the cases um, that I studied, Johnson v. McAdoo, Cato, Pigford, Obadell, and a re-African-American slave descendants. Note that from 1916 to 2005, we have these huge, massive cases undertaken in the courts. And so now I'm going to talk about what guided their attorneys um, and how they made these arguments and why they were not effective. So pathos. On this side, we have um, the picture uh, memorialized of Mamie Till um, bending over the graveside of her son mm -hmm. Emmett, who was lynched. Emmett uh, was in Mississippi visiting his grandparents on vacation. He, is, he was from Chicago. And allegedly, Carolyn Bryant says that uh, Emmett whistled at her in the store which prompted her husband and his friend to go out and get Emmett um, and to tie his body to a cotton gin fan and throw it in the Tattahoochee River. As they were searching for Emmett's body, they found tons of corpses in the river and in other rivers in Mississippi. And these were the men who had been lynched and nobody looked for them before this point. So Ella Baker, who, is a, who was a social justice organizer, as she was speaking about Emmett Till, she said, until the killing of black mother's sons is as important as the killing of white mother's sons, we who believe in freedom shall not rest. And Emmett, um, there was a lot of, of controversy about Emmett's body and about getting it back to Mamie um, and about getting it to her in Chicago. The NAACP had to intervene. Um, and Mamie made the, um, the decision at that point to have Emmett's body um, revealed in, in an open casket. And her, the enduring quote that comes from Mamie is, I want the whole world to see what they did to my boy. And so Emmett's funeral, um, which again, I wish I had the pictures from Ebony Magazine. I mean, it, it was like, you know bigger than many celebrity funerals, state funerals, is believed to be the start of the classic civil rights movement, pathos, using emotion to persuade. But whose emotions matter? On this side, I have Lewis Head, who is Mike Brown's stepfather. This picture is of him learning that there would be no indictment for the police officer who murdered Mike. And when he heard this, he said, there's actually video of him yelling, burn this bitch down. And because of this, the prosecutors began proceedings to indict him for the fires that made Ferguson burn, whose emotions matter. The next Aristotelian appeal is ethos, using character, credibility, and gravitas to persuade. Whose stories do we believe? Here we have Sandra Bland, who was pulled over on a routine traffic stop. She ends up dead in her cell. And the question is, did she kill herself or was she murdered? Who do we believe? Now we have footage that has surfaced from her cell phone, and so we have a better idea of what happened. But remember the controversy in the days following 
her death. Here we have Eric Garner, and I picked this picture because in three frames it shows how quickly the situation escalated. Of course, Eric Garner said the, his famous last words, I can't breathe. Look at his initial interaction with the police officer, the forbidden chokehold, and eventually his strangulation. Whose stories do we believe? We didn't believe either of these people, and why didn't we believe them? Lastly, logos. Now, this is my lady justice. She's not, you know, she's not checking for y'all. She doesn't believe that there is justice. She's a little skeptical. Scales of justice are a little small. She has a lot of swagger about her. And what she wants you to know is this. Logic is based on two things. How you know what you know and how you are who you are. The fancy words for those are how you know what you know is epistemology. How I make sense of the world is directly related to how I understand my place in the world. is directly related to my culture. And how you are, who you are, my ontology, how do I believe that I got here? And so epistemology and ontology determine how we build the analytical framework and reason to legal outcomes. How the lawyers in the cases that I listed for you um, were able to argue and ultimately to fail. And so back to this litigation universe, nomos sets the rule of the game. It's rooted in Western rhetoric. But nomo at the bottom is from the African diasporic tradition, and nomo is the universe in which invocations for justice function. These are always in conflict because of how we view these things in the racialized nomo. So I want to talk to you a little bit about this concept of ideograph and analytical framework. So I want you to stay with me here because it's a little heady. So as I'm drafting a brief as an attorney, there are certain landmines, and those landmines are ideographs. And ideographs are words that bring with them all of these um, modes of reasoning, all of this baggage. If you think of the word citizenship, right, citizenship is an ideograph because with it comes all of this baggage about what we think about it. And so when we use the word, no matter what we say after, people are going to have a certain perception of what that word means. Are you following me? So in the reparations litigation universe, using the words slavery, discrimination, bring with them certain set frameworks that the court utilizes in resolving these disputes, word blocks, if you will. So in my first case, Johnson v. McAdoo in 1916, the Johnson plaintiffs framed themselves and their ancestors as subject to a system of involuntary servitude. Of course they did. They were enslaved between the years of 1859 and 1868. However, in doing so, they implicated slavery as an ideograph that evokes a cascade of beliefs that normalizes people of African descent as laborers and justifies their, victim in it, their victimization. So with, as an ideograph, slavery uh, focuses the court on systems over people. And you might think, that's good, that's what we want. But the response of the court was to say, because you have now implicated a system, the United States government, and not the Secretary of Treasury, not an individual, 
then you must engage with the United States government that gets to decide whether you get to sue it for a wrong that you have perceived. So this was the reason why the court said you lose. Because every time you invoke slavery as an ideograph, the court says sovereign immunity and you lose. In Cato v. United States in 1995, the plaintiffs again evoked slavery. And as an ideograph, the court said, fine, now we not only invoke sovereign immunity as a roadblock, but also the statute of limitations because it's 1995 and slavery ended in 1865. So you have to show that there's a direct line between your wrong that you're alleging and any damages that you want to get. So slavery then invoked the sovereign immunity roadblock and the statute of limitations roadblock. The uh, Cato plaintiffs also argued that they were the victims of discrimination. And the court, discrimination is operating as an ideograph in the realm of reparations litigation. And so the court says, okay, the roadblock we're, we're throwing up for this is political question and standing. Do you have, a st do you have standing to bring this lawsuit? You were not directly enslaved. And the political question doctrine, that this is for the legislature to resolve, not for the court. So in every single piece of litigation that I studied, every time the plaintiffs talked about slavery as a system of oppression, every time they talked about being the victims of discrimination, the court said sovereign immunity, statute of limitations, political question, and standing. Pickford v. Glickman, um, is a case that involved black farmers, um, and it, uh, the, the plaintiffs brought the lawsuit specifically under a anti-discrimination statute. And the reason why I say they kind of won is because they got a recovery. The farmers uh, brought a class action suit in Pickford um, about the number of, of black farmers that were dispossessed of their land, but they didn't really win. Um, 907,000 African-American farms disappeared between 1920 and 1922. And the putative class of, the, of plaintiffs in the original cause of action was only 641 black farmers. So if you think about 907,000 black uh, farms and only 641 black farmers, that's not really a victory. So why does reparation litigation fail? Partly it fails because of our understanding of the past and its impact on the present. And so there are these ideologies that drive how the court sees these cases. And one, remember what I, what I told you about the difference between nomo and nomos, right? Nomo is the universe in which invocations for justice function. Um, the African-American or the African diasporic experience has with it the overriding belief in perseverance, endurance, and hope. An understanding that there is history and that our history is not behind us, but it is ever-present and in front of us, and we are working through it, that it always has an impact on how we live our lives daily. But the white racial recovery rhetoric, the racial recovery rhetoric that the court uses to resolve these, this litigation is based on honor and remembrance. That history is something that happened in the past. You don't believe me? Honor and remembrance, perseverance, 
endurance, and hope. Anytime lawyers attempt to connect the present condition of African Americans living in the U.S. to the legacies of slavery and Jim Crow, the court throws up these roadblocks. So I want to read for you um, for a moment part of the opening words of um, the brief from Enri African American Descendants and Cato v. United States. So in the Descendants case, they say, equality under the law and freedom from discrimination are not reparations. They are separate issues from reparations. Their implementation does not provide repair for the damage done nor restitution for the property stolen. A decision by the representative branches of government does not ipso facto relegate the issue of reparations to their exclusive purview. They're speaking specifically about political questions, that you don't get to move this discussion to the legislature, that we can have the discussion in the legislature, but we also need to have the discussion in the court. The Cato brief reads as follows in their opening brief. This lawsuit is of great historical significance and is long overdue. There is a sufficient precedent for the United States government to pay, to pay reparations to racial or ethnic groups that it has injured. Descendants of Native American nations have rightfully been paid millions of dollars for U.S. treaty violations. Japanese Americans interned during World War II were rightfully paid $20,000 each and given a formal apology by the government. Certainly, the plight of enslaved Africans and their descendants the thousands of dead African bodies tossed into the Atlantic Ocean during the Middle Passage, the billions of dollars worth of free labor forcibly extracted at the crack of a whip, the innumerable rapes and beatings of women and men who toiled for lifetimes in the sweltering heat, the countless crying infants torn from the arms of their grieving mothers, the federal government's abandonment of the survivors of the Holocaust, of this Holocaust, to the uh, mercy of lynch mobs and Klansmen and humiliating, humiliating treatment based on a theory of racial inferiority and all the subsequent cases of racially motivated discrimination, abuse, and murder, surely this too deserves an apology and compensation. The court creates a legal fiction about how it has ruled on the merits of discrimination claims and that have dealt with slavery and its ongoing harm, particularly as it relates to black people and white supremacy. But it pushes the responsibility of addressing it as reparations back on the legislature to the extent that courts actually use history to draw upon um, in its analysis, it cherry picks. So in the Enri African-American Descendants case, the court goes into a huge discussion about the Civil War and the history of the Civil War. Um, and it largely talks about it as a military history. Um, and I go into a lot of detail about this in the article. A particular interest to us for this talk is that the court uses only white historians to talk about the history of slavery, except for one exception, when it uses a black historian for the proposition that, you guessed it, Africans participated in the slave trade. White racial recovery rhetoric of honor and remembrance versus African-American recovery rhetoric of perseverance, endurance, and hope are locked in um, this enduring struggle. And this is why litigation fails in the racialized nomos. So right now I want
want you to make a conceptual leap with me. This is why I have these pictures here. Anybody know what this picture is? The style is very much of a plantation house. And what I want to talk to you about is our cultural inheritance in the United States, our cultural inheritance as family. And that when slavery uh, ended in 1865, the plantation, the site of the state shifted from the plantation to the White House but it didn't really change. Family is understood in the Western world is the normative universe of testamentary disposition. And so the question I have for you is, who is worthy of our cultural inheritance? Presently, our cultural inheritance of privilege and power, um, descendants of, Af of the African uh, enslaved are excluded from that cultural inheritance. Courts have underscored in the realm of testamentary dispositions that natural bequests are those the testator makes to his family. In the same way as natural bequests in our United States government of privilege and power are those made to family. And the courts have made it very clear that people of African descent are not part of the American family. Unnatural dispositions raise the possibility of undue influence, right? Anyone not a blood relative of the testator is an unnatural beneficiary of his or her estate, even if that person was a caregiver to the testator before his or her demise. So I want you to think about this, right? After, uh, after slavery, the plantation is a organizing structure for society, because make no mistake, it was an organizing structure for society, transferred to the state, and the state became the master of a nation in which difference was enshrined in our founding documents and reflected in our lived experience. Who is in the American family? Who is a natural recipient of our cultural inheritance. So I want to talk to you a little bit about our will. You can think of the Constitution as our national will, right? The will as a document is a personal narrative, and it is central um, to the process in which an individual confronts his or her mortality, assesses their life accomplishments and disappointments, and uh, contemplates his or her legacy. In this regard, the will is a story. It's a story that the testator tells about his or her life through the language of the will and those things the testator gives at death, to whom the testator chooses to give them, and the people to whom the testator chooses to give them. This narrative becomes contested when the person is not family. When a testator disinherits the testator's heirs, by failure to give them any of the testator's estate, the disinherited resorts to litigation to contest the will, primarily under the legal theory of undue influence. A narrative that the testator tells about his or her life through the language of the will and those things the testator gives at death and how the testator chooses to give them and the people to whom the testator gives them. Think about freedom 
in this respect, right? Freedom via a will or freedom for the formerly enslaved. This process involves taking something away from someone and giving it to someone else. And isn't this what we're talking about when we talk about reparations? That the biggest uh, barrier, the biggest debate is I was not the owner of slaves, and I will tell you, I, I was never a slave, and yet here we are. But just as in the realm of testamentary disposition, when we give something away from, when we take something away from someone who is family and we give it to someone who we don't think is deserving, there's a will contest. And right now, we're in a will contest over our cultural inheritance. And someone's going to have to give up something or be forced to give up something in order to give back to the people who built this country, who built this economy, who built a global economy. So when I was writing and studying about this, I was contacted by several attorneys um, who had litigated will contests based on uh, dispositions that were given during slavery. So basically, descendants of enslaved people came to them and said, hey, we found this will in, the pa in, in, um, in these papers, and it seems that our, our, our um, relatives were given their freedom via will, but the family just conveniently forgot about it. And the question then became, so what do we get now? Because I'm here to tell you that the descendants of Joseph M. James um, his legitimate or, or, or illegitimate children, there are no illegitimate children, only illegitimate parents, um, but his children, the enslaved that worked on that plantation, that $1.3 million, people, $1.3, that's a heck of a start in life, is it not? And I can tell you through my research that this money was rolled into corporations that are now Fortune 500 corporations. This money was rolled into families who are now the leading families. And so we all look around and we say, this is for the legislature. I'm going to tell you it's not for the legislature because we can draw a straight line from these records to who's benefiting now. So again, in the reparations contest, the will is a cultural narrative. And right now, African Americans are outside of the family created at the founding of the country. Remember, if you read Dred Scott v. Sanford, and the court says that African Americans were not intended, were not um, meant to be included in we the people. A reparations appeal to the U.S. government is akin to a claim of undue influence of the paternal master, the testator. And we will lose the will contest every time when we were, when we were sent to a Congress who refuses to discuss the matter at all. Congress refuses to discuss the matter at all. So it's up to us to reshape our cultural inheritance. And this is what I propose. This is how I propose we move forward. We have to take responsibility for the legacy of slavery as a country, and we have to reshape who is a beneficiary of our cultural inheritance and who is in our national family. Or if we don't take responsibility, then we need to have that responsibility thrust upon us. So social media has been instrumental in exposing people doing dangerous racist acts. Why not use it as a vehicle to expose family and corporate wealth rooted in enslavement and tie it to it directly? And I have tons of records. My friends laugh at me. I have tons of plantation records. I carry them in boxes every time I move to a new state. Recently they were digitized. Thank you for my research assistant. 
But I have them. In fact, the record that you have is one that I carry with me on my iPod, and I have it in airports, and I talk to people, I say, hey, want to see a plantation record? I stopped doing that because people start crying, and then I don't know what to do. Um, because it is evocative, right? But even though litigation is ineffective, it can be effective to bring attention to an issue. Um, and so when I file a complaint, it becomes a matter of public record. So I'm willing to find a, file a complaint using an extensive amount of slave records and calling people out for their wrongdoing, um, for their ancestors' wrongdoing, and for their um, unearned benefit that they got from people like Ella, who at eight years old was picking on average 50 pounds of cotton, cotton a day. My proposal is meant to influence public perception and understanding about the impact of slavery and Jim Crow. Because as Dr. Brown said, this is not history. This is memory. So in closing, our destinies are bound up together. We can continue to rip each other apart or reckon with our past and make things right. Thank you. So are there any questions, comments? I know this is heavy. <laughs> yes. Um, hi, I'm Cashmere. Um, my question is, um, in the recent cases that you talked about uh, asking about reparations and how the court said that they couldn't take them because of political question, how did they reconcile that with the Dred Scott case if they've already dealt with a case about slavery? How can they say it's now a political question? Because the court creates this legal fiction that history is in the past and it has no bearing on our future. So it silos it there and says that that happened then, but this is something different now. Okay. So it's an understanding that it chooses to, to advance about our history. Okay. Mm -hmm. But in reality, we know that's not the case. Yes, and again, the court um, in um, McCleskey v. Kemp, uh, the United States Supreme Court lays out the parameters for using historical documentation as a persuasive tool. And essentially what it says is there has to be a straight line between the harm you're alleging and the present damages and that you have to bring history contemporaneous with what's going on now. So in order to bring a successful lawsuit, you would have to show that for every year since you're, that you're alleging that redlining happened, that you have to show how it continued to happen um, for your plaintiff in their particular area and the impact that it's had on their family. And the reason why most attorneys won't do that is because, one, they don't know how to access those resources to do that. Two, it takes a tremendous amount of people power to create such a, a, a document. So the court is basically kind of you know, put the kibosh on how we're allowed to litigate using history. I saw another hand somewhere. Yes? Recently in the news, there was a discussion of reparations, even uh, a hearing of it, and there were many steps towards reparations that have been made in the final judgment. I'd love to hear your opinion on that, and that, and also if you see any further resurrection of reparations. 
I think that a lot of the discussion is, is well-meaning but wrong-headed. I mean, part of um, my husband and I joked when I was preparing this talk, and I said, you know, I always give my talk two, two titles, uh, one for you all and one for me. Um, the title for me was Run, Cut Me, My Check. Um, and so the reason why I think it's, it's wrong-headed is because we're talking in, of reparations in terms of, oh, you know, we should implement these social programs, and we should, you know, make sure people have affordable housing. And that's great, but run, cut me my check, right? Like this is real. This is actual money. This is actual money that I can trace. So, yeah, I think we should be talking about both. But I, don't, I think we should be talking about actual checks, actual money. Because one plantation, $1.3 million in 1857, and we're still almost 10 years until the end of slavery? Come on. $60 million, $68 million in 1865 that the U.S. government taxed and seized? Come on. I mean, the plaintiff in Johnson v. McAdoo had it right. Where's my equitable lien on this cotton that I helped to cultivate? The people who actually benefited from it. I want to go after private corp. I want to go after corporations. <laughs> I want to go after the families that have benefited from this money. Yeah, and, and what most people don't know, because we don't teach this to you all in school, is that there are thousands of these records, thousands of them. And I am just stubborn enough that I have gone through thousands of them. I spent two years in the archives looking at these things until I went, you know, like I had to get go to the eye doctor, and they were like, stop looking at records. Um, but, you know, this is, this is real. Also, I want to add, too, is that, um, not all white people are included in our understanding of American families. So a book I'm working on right now deals with a Southern overseers. And overseers were a class of poor whites that worked on plantations. And what I found in my research is that overseers signed contracts with planters. Overseers were always white men who signed uh, uh, contracts with planters for their employment over the course of the year, and the planters never paid them. So it's years and years and years and years, and after every year, they're like, oh, by the way, we don't have enough money to pay you, notwithstanding this $1.3 million I just made. Um, but you keep working on the plantation, and maybe one day we'll settle up. And so my argument is that you get a claim, too. If, you weren't, you're, you're, if your ancestors weren't paid for their labor, you get a claim, too. Because we can prove that, too. I have those records. No, what's really funny to me is that um, everyone thinks that, like, Nazi Germany, you know, cornered the market on documentation of a Holocaust, but these plantations were, these planters were the template for Nazi Germany. And so these records are as specific as any records that you would find out of the Third Reich. And this is just a, a, a like, I pulled the ones that were just, you know, viscerally that you could understand, but... And this, this is a whole plantation accounting book. So 
Think about it. The overseer is, at the end of the day, all the enslaved individuals are coming up to the overseer, getting their bags of cotton weighed. The overseer is writing this down in the ledger and then calculating how much cotton was picked the week before and adding it to the amount of cotton picked in that present week. But in addition, the overseer ledger book has notes on each enslaved individual. So the overseer will say, well, you know, Amen was a little slow this week. He got a slow start. He picked 106 pounds of cotton. Um, by Thursday, he picked 147 pounds. And maybe we should increase the quota to 300 so we can push him. Um, and so there's like all these notes that the overseers took on each enslaved individual. There are notes about each task that they were set to. I study exclusively cotton plantations, partly because of the role of cotton in the global economy, but also because it was a specific system of labor, a gang system of labor that lent itself to certain um, consistencies and continuities. But, you know, they didn't destroy them. They were proud of them. In fact, George Washington made one of the first plantation management books, um, and in it he said he talked in glowing terms about the overseer walking out the footsteps of the planter um, and the interplay between the two. Um, and so many of the people who are, are called the founding fathers of our country were responsible for this whole regime of plantation management. And in the management discipline, um, overseers were the first group of salaried individuals in the United States as managers, if you can think about that. So again, this whole regime sparked ways that we still deal with management of labor today. Um, and make no mistake that as managers, I mean, cotton is unique in that it requires you to pick it and then it has to be processed before it can be sold. And you can have as much land and as much labor as you want, but the productivity of the labor um, is, is what makes the difference between how much money you're able to make. So overseers were experts in the use of torture in getting enslaved individuals to work faster. And so this is what this whole regime was based on, the torture, death, maiming of a workforce to make them as, as productive as possible. And I don't know if you've ever seen a cotton plant or if you ever just held a cotton ball in your hand, 267 pounds of cotton, that's a lot. And to do that in one day. Mm -hmm. I was trying to say, um, going after, for instance, the Brown family out of uh, you know, the Northeast or Etna, um, but what about the federal government? As you pointed <laughs> out, the federal government paid uh, reparations for uh, Japanese uh, folks that were in internment camps, at least during that time period. Uh, the federal government paid reparations for Vietnamese soldiers who worked with the federal government mm -hmm. and leave during the Vietnam War. And uh, make no mistake, slave labor helped to build the Capitol building. Absolutely. So why not? Um, and I, I want to come back to this: that in those instances, the entire nation paid. Absolutely. Even though I didn't do anything wrong to, you know, intern anyone or put anyone in an internment camp. So I, so I'm just curious as to why not at least hold the federal government responsible. Yeah, I'm not ruling it out, but I'm just thinking strategically in the, econ in the economic and political climate in which we find ourselves, I think that's a, it's a non-starter, but I'm not against it. I mean, I think that strategically, yes, and if they want to throw up the roadblock of political question, well, let's, let's engage the political question then. Um, but I, you're absolutely right that the government was, I mean, $68 million was not going to the people <laughs> um, in 1865. So, yes, yeah, I, I agree. Mm-hmm. 
highly familiar with the case, so um, I believe it was thrown out. And I was wondering if you were aware if that like um, was the same rationale for the other reparations cases. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, all of American industry, what we think of as the hallmarks of American industry, was built on the backs of this suffering. And so, and I think it's a, it's a lot to wrap your mind around to think about the U.S. as a global leader in cotton production, and all of that is because of enslaved labor. The e economy that we currently exist in would not exist but for slave labor. The financial instruments that exist would not exist but for slave labor. So when you think about it that way, it's built into the fabric. Uh, cotton, I used to have a lecture called Cotton, the Fabric of Our Lives. It is, it is literally the, the fabric of our lives. I have another lecture called Sugar, the Crack in the New World. Same issue, right, that it is sugar plantation. It was, sugar was like crack, right, and, be, and sugar plantations killed labor. I mean, the life expectancy of an enslaved individual on a sugar plantation is 10 years. That's it. Um, and sl enslaved individuals, because of slave trade, um, the transatlantic slave trade ended in 1808. We've got labor being driven down from Maryland and Virginia to Georgia, Alabama, Arkansas, Tennessee, um, West Virginia um, to, to work on cotton plantations to fuel this world economy. Mm -hmm. I mean, everyone in the African, Af African diaspora, so all African diasporic people, because the, the you know, slavery existed. Um, what, another thing that you all don't learn is that slavers were really, um, they understood that there were specialized labor uh, forces on the continent of Africa, so they went to specific countries where cotton was being cultivated and indigo was being cultivated and took people from those places. And so if you go to the African-American History Museum uh, in D.C. and you, you start out the um, tour, you will see the impact of all the countries uh, in the world, primarily Europe, had in their participation in the slave trade. And so this was a global economy. There was no north and south. It was, they were all complicit. So, yes, African diasporic people. Mm -hmm. this, I was kind of depressed after studying these cases because I thought there's no way um, that because this is, these are the robots that are thrown up for litigation. So the short answer to that question is until we grapple with the fact that history is not history, it's memory, then we can't get any further. So any discussion of an act or even successful litigation is premature because we're still locked in this um, struggle over history and what it means to us today. So until we get past that, the courts are not going to help us, and neither is Congress. I think we're at time, but I'll take questions. If <laughs> yes? Um, well, since you talked about how this impacted the global economy and how you know, the globe benefited, and the African slave trade was international, not just in the Americas, but South America and you know, the Caribbean, do you think maybe this should be more of an international issue where the whole world would be held accountable? That would help. 
<laughs> would be a start, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. All right. Thank you all for coming. It's a pleasure to welcome you uh, to the University of Illinois at Chicago, those of you who are not already here. Uh, a special welcome, of course, uh, to our invited Philip Bowman lecture, uh, Dr. William Sandy Darity from Duke University. Um, we are delighted to have you on our campus, and I'm very much looking forward to your lecture. I should also note that we have Philip Bowman himself here. Where did he go? There he is. There he is. And so we're delighted to have you here um, as well, Dr. Bowman. Um, I want to also give a special welcome to the community leaders and members of Chicago Civic Organizations who are joining us this afternoon, as well, of course, as our UIC faculty, students, and staff. The Institute for Research on Race and Public Policy has a mission to increase society's understanding of the root causes of racial and ethnic inequality and to provide the public, organizers, practitioners, and policymakers with research-based policy solutions. The Institute was created uh, in the 1990s to address the low representation of people of color throughout this university. It's been going strong now for over 20 years and has served the campus and the community as a place of intellectual inquiry, evidence-based research, and strategic thinking. Its current director, Dr. Amanda Lewis, has continued this legacy with her visionary and collaborative leadership. Now, maybe this has always been true, but it feels like now more than ever we need centers like the IRRPP to offer a, offer a community of scholars support for their intellectual endeavors around issues of race, to collaborate with community organizers on social justice projects, and to explore the relationship between policy and racial injustice. UIC has a deep and abiding commitment to the work of the IRRPP. We are, as our chancellor likes to say, not just the University of Illinois at Chicago, but the University of Illinois for Chicago. We cannot possibly fulfill that mission without long-term and sustained efforts that address the most important issues of our time and that leverage our collective skills in research and community outreach. Issues of race, justice, and public policy take their place at the top of our priorities at UIC. And I cannot emphasize this point better than by quoting the beginning and the end of a long poem by Langston Hughes, which I actually only learned about last week when it was quoted by the president of the ACLU who visited our campus. Hughes starts the poem this way, let America be America again, let it be the dream it used to be, let it be the pioneer on the plain seeking a home where he himself is free. America never was America to me. And he then has a long and, and beautiful poem and he ends it this way. Oh yes, I say it plain, America never was America to me, and yet I swear this oath, America will be. Now, the Institute for Research on Race and Public Policy is dedicated to understanding how we can create the America that was meant to be. There is no nobler cause and never has been in this country. So again, I want to thank you for being here, and I look forward to an interesting and engaging afternoon. Thanks. Thank you so much. Um,
for those of you who don't know me, my name is Amanda Lewis, and I have the pleasure of being the director of the Institute for Research on Race and Public Policy, as well as being on the faculty here in Sociology and African American Studies. It is my great pleasure today to introduce our speaker for our annual Philip J. Bowman Lecture on Race, Ethnicity, and Public Policy. The Bowman Lecture focuses on providing timely analysis of issues of race, ethnicity, and justice facing us today. The lecture is named after the first permanent director of IRPP, who does happen to be sitting right here, Philip J. Bowman, both because of his important leadership of the Institute and because of his prolific record as a scholar. All of us who have benefited from the work of IRPP over the last 15 or 20 years owe a great debt of gratitude to Phil for his careful and strategic nurturance of this institute at its beginning. He set a strong foundation that has enabled IRBP to serve its mission of supporting UIC faculty and students, increasing the quantity, quality, and impact of research on race and policy at UIC, and serving as an important intellectual hub here in Chicago for cutting-edge research on race and ethnic dynamics that is deeply engaged, not only with trying to understand, but to transform the conditions of underrepresented groups. Dr. Bowman is currently professor of higher education at the University of Michigan, where he's also director of the Diversity Research and Policy Program, as well as faculty associate for the Institute for Social Research and National Poverty Center. Dr. Bowman's scholarship focuses on racial and ethnic diversity, higher education, and related policy issues, including workforce opportunity, urban poverty, family distress, and health inequalities. He's also taking national leadership right now and pushing conversations about strengths-based interventions to reduce inequalities, disparities, and opportunity gaps. I am lucky to have known him for more than 20 years. He is often, I describe, the ultimate intellectual and scholar, mostly because he is just deeply and sincerely interested in the world, in people's stories, and in understanding why things are the way they are and how to transform them in ways to create more opportunity. Recently, I ran into yet another friend and colleague who had met Phil for the first time and sat down with him for what turned out to be a three-hour conversation. Those of you who know Phil know what I'm talking about. Um, and gained more insights, they said, in that one conversation that they'd gotten in their entire graduate school career. Um, Dr. Bowman operates with brilliance, great integrity, and skill, and we are very honored that he could be here with us today. Thanks very much for coming. The other asterisk to Phil is I keep trying to get his family here for this celebrate, um, but they're so overly accomplished, his children. So one of them just got a named professorship at Columbia last week, so they all had to go there for that. So next year maybe they'll come here and join us for this. Um, our speaker today shares several qualities with Phil, as you'll notice when I um, get into the meat of my introduction. Um, it is with uh, great joy that I introduce William A. Sandy Darity, who is the Samuel Du Bois Cook Professor of Public Policy, African and African American Studies and Economics, and the director of the Samuel Du Bois Cook Center on Social Equity at Duke University. He has served as chair of the Department of African and African American Studies and was the founding director of the Research Network on Racial and Ethnic Inequality at Duke. He was most recently a fellow at the Russell Sage Foundation, but has also held prestigious fellowships at the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford and at the National Humanities Center, and has been a visiting scholar at the Federal Reserve Board of Governors. In, 19, um, excuse me, in 2012, he received the Samuel Z. Westerfeld Award from the National Economic Association, the organization's highest honor. He is a past president of the National Economic Association, the Southern Economic Association, um, and as well, speaking to his wide reach and his deep interdisciplinary commitments, also it was the 
I guess, past and current president of the Association of Black Sociologists. It's a long story. Um, Dr. Darity has published or edited more than a dozen books um, and hundreds of articles in professional journals. Dr. Darity is also one of the most generous scholars I have known. He has done as much to help widen the pipeline for faculty of color into the academy as anyone I know. I can't tell you how many times I've been in conversation with a junior scholar, a postdoc, a graduate student somewhere, and Sandy's name comes up and they say that he has read their paper or helped them get into graduate school or that they attended some summer research a mentoring program that he either run, ran or came to or helped fund, etc. He's not just one of the smartest people I know, um, and I must admit to taking some joy in seeing um, some otherwise very overly con uh, confident economists I know kind of become nervous in his presence, but one of the most grounded and engaged scholars I know. He's also a very talented blues musician, um, but I don't think he brought his harmonica with him today, so we'll have to wait till next visit. Oh, you have it? Okay. Um, anyway, I'm very excited to have him here today. I will now sit down so he can tell us about our work. He's going to be talking about some of the research from his forthcoming book on, um, on reparations. Thanks very much. Uh, thank you, Amanda. That's extraordinarily generous. Uh, I, I also want to say that uh, it's my hope that my research center at Duke and IRRPP can develop a collaboration on, hopefully on a project trying to survey, uh, to gain information about wealth differentials by race and ethnicity in Chicago, uh, which we think, you know, needs, needs to happen. Uh, I'd also like to thank uh, Amanda's partner, Tyrone, uh, for spending a year next door to me at Stanford and putting up with a variety of loud noises, especially music that came out of my office. And, uh, and then I'd like to thank Phil Bowman. Uh, people frequently ask me, who, is, you know, who are my mentors? And at my age, there are very few of them remaining. Uh, but, but Phil Bowman is one, and one of the most important. <laughs> one of the most important. Uh, he, he's, he's, He's one of the deepest scholars that I know, but he's also unusual because he is somebody who has excelled not only as a researcher, but as a university administrator at the highest levels. And so uh, I'm, I'm very honored to be uh, giving this lecture that is named after you. So thank you. Um, so I'm working on a book called From Here to Equality with Kirsten Mullen, who is my partner. And uh, the book opens with a description of three objectives that are associated with reparations. In fact, uh, we, we borrowed the phrase that Martin Luther King is famous for using, uh, you know, the, the arc of, of justice. And, uh, and we borrowed that phrase because there are three components to reparations that fit nicely in the context of, uh, of, of, of those terms. Um, the first is, uh, the A is acknowledgement, the R is redress, and the C is closure. So by acknowledgement, what we mean is a reparations program is supposed to engage with a process of recognition and admission of the wrong by the perpetrators and or the beneficiaries of a major social injustice. The apology 
should take place, but the apology must be accompanied by a commitment for redress. So redress is, uh, is the, second, the second component of, uh, of a reparations project, and this can take two different forms. One form is atonement. So the perpetrators and or beneficiaries must meet conditions of forgiveness on the part of the victims. The victims must establish what the terrain is for, for, uh, for forgiveness, and there should be good faith negotiations between those who are wronged and the wrongdoers or the wrongdoing institution. Restitution, on the other hand, typically means the restoration of the survivors to the condition that they experienced prior to the injustice or the position that they might have attained in the absence of the injustice. So restitution is somewhat different because then we have a metric that's based upon a presumed or imagined alternative state of affairs for the victimized population. And then closure means mutual reconciliation takes place and there are no further claims made by the victim community for race-specific or group-specific programs. Indeed, no further claims will be made unless, of course, there's a new round of injustices. Okay. So those are the three components of a reparations program and I'd like to, uh, uh, to, 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 to take the next step in the conversation by exploring why we might have a reparations program. And unfortunately, in the context of thinking about reparations for black Americans, there has been a nearly exclusive emphasis on slavery as the pertinent atrocity that justifies reparations. But I'd like to ask about the record of atrocities during the 150 years since slavery. Tanasi Coates's resurrection of the conversation about reparations is particularly notable because Tanasi focuses on what happened after slavery. And indeed, he focuses heavily on what happened in the 20th century rather than the 19th century. So the focus of my conversation today is actually going to span the entire 150 years since slavery ended. And I'm going to try to make it clear the, the un, that the unjust treatment of blacks in the United States is a national problem, and it always has been a national problem. This is one of the reasons that I wanted to give you this first slide a Ku Klux Klan rally that's taking place on East Main Street in Ashland, Oregon in the 1920s. Now, Oregon has a peculiarly troubling history. Uh, whites who migrated to the present-day state of Oregon during the 1840s and 1850s were typically against slavery, but they also were simultaneously against living with blacks. On September 21, 1849, the territorial legislature passed a law that said, it shall not be lawful for any Negro or mulatto to enter into or reside in Oregon. And in the preamble to the law, Negroes were, uh, Negroes were disturbingly described as being likely to intermix with Indians instilling into their minds feelings of hostility toward the white race. Now, I, I presume that the native population didn't have any independent reason for having some <laughs> hostility toward the white race, but anyway. Um, 
This clause, of course, uh, was rendered moot by the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, but it was not actually repealed until 1926. And other infelicitous language, shall we say, uh, was not removed from the state's official documents until 2002. Now, in the 1860 census, and, and this is just to indicate that this, this, these, this ordinance seems to have been fairly effective. Uh, in the 1860 census, there were 128 blacks in the population of 52,465 people in Oregon. In 2013, only 2% of the state's population is black. So we frequently heard references to sundown towns. These are towns where, uh, you know, if, you, if you're black, you better be out of town before the sun goes down. Um, I've also used that, that concept metaphorically to describe academic departments that have never had a black faculty member. So I call them sundown departments, okay? Uh, but, but Oregon functioned as a sundown state. Okay, so this is particularly striking. Not in the South, not in the Northeast, but in the far west of the United States, we have Oregon. So uh, the, 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 the first phase of, uh, of oppression that's associated with the post-slavery period is the failure to fulfill the promise of 40 acres and a mule to families who had been enslaved. Had that promise been made, had the ex-slaves been given a substantial endowment in southern real estate, it is likely that there would be no need for reparations to be under consideration today. The 40 acres were to be allocated roughly to families of four, therefore each ex-slave should have received 10 acres of land. Since there were 4 million ex-slaves, a total of 40 million acres of land should have been allocated to formerly enslaved blacks. Now, while 40 acres was small compared against many American slave plantations, it would have been a substantial allotment. In 2013, the median American home was located on 8,596 square feet of land, or 0.2 acres. Therefore, on average, 200 residences could have been built on the typical tract of land that should have been distributed to the ex-slaves. It would have made it possible for descendants of the enslaved to have sold significant property at a high price to developers or to have become developers themselves or to have created other innovative commercial uses for their property. While the allocation of 40 acres was not made, black American farmer, farmers managed to amass mass 16 to 19 million acres of land by dint of their own efforts by 1910. Still less than half of the amount the ex-slaves should have received during Reconstruction, but not insubstantial. This was the peak of land ownership by black farmers in the United States, with 218,000 farmers as full or partial owners. By 1997, black farm land ownership had diminished to a mere 2.4 million acres. Today, the top five white landowners in the United States own more land than the whole of black America, and apparently Ted Turner alone owns more than the equivalent of one quarter of the entire acreage of land in the possession of black Americans. The record of black land loss has not been a voluntary, one of voluntary sales at market prices. 
the land African Americans lost over the 20th century was taken in some form and not sold freely. As Thomas Pinnock and Gray report, in many instances, black land literally was seized in a climate of white terror, and their findings are based upon an investigation that was conducted early in the 21st century. Now, the failure to grant the ex-slaves an initial stake in American property ownership and subsequent sustained land taking from blacks has contributed to the comprehensive denial of black wealth accumulation. Apart from the barriers to land ownership, black home ownership was restricted by discriminatory redlining, differential access to government finance for home mortgages, and most recently by the subprime mortgage crisis engendered by loan pushing by the banking system. By 2013, data from the Federal Reserve Survey of Consumer Finances indicates that white median wealth or net worth is 15 times greater than black median wealth or net worth. Now, not only were blacks not given the promised 40 acres and a mule after the Civil War ended, but a white terror campaign that included assassinations of black elected officials, freedmen, and their white allies throughout the South prevented blacks from exercising their right to vote. Black state senator and prominent delegate to the post-Civil War South Carolina Constitutional Convention, Benjamin F. Randolph, a staunch advocate of black suffrage and education and the publisher and co-editor of the Charleston Advocate, a newspaper for freedmen, was executed by the Ku Klux Klan at a train depot in Hodges, South Carolina in 1868. The Klan also executed white North Carolina State Senator John W. Stevens in a courthouse in Yanceyville in 1870. Stevens had been a member of both the Republican Party and the Union League. A former Confederate, Stevens' efforts to organize blacks in Caswell County, North Carolina, obviously inflamed the white supremacists. The impressions of Union Colonel Samuel Thomas in 1865 exposed the depth of white disdain for black political rights and black life after slavery's end. Colonel Samuel Thomas, the assistant commissioner of the Freedmen's Bureau, who opened the bureau office in Vicksburg, noticed white Mississippians' defiant posture when he traveled throughout the state at months after the war. Wherever I go, the street, the shop, the house, or the steamboat, I hear the people talk in such a way as to indicate that they are yet unable to conceive of the Negro as possessing any rights at all. Thomas worried that whites, who are honorable in their dealings with their white neighbors, will cheat a Negro without feeling a single twinge of, the, twinge of their honor. To kill a Negro they do not deem murder. Such men openly boasted to Thomas that blacks will catch hell when local whites reacquired political control. Trying to explain this defiance, Thomas pointed to prejudices seared into white minds and hearts during the era of slavery. As Thomas put it, through white, though white Mississippians admit that the individual relations of masters and slaves have been destroyed by the war and the President's Emancipation Proclamation, they still have an ingrained feeling that the blacks at large belong to the whites at large. These attitudes produce the conditions for an intense and systematic level of white supremacist political violence throughout the states of the former Confederacy. This was particularly true in the states where Republican Party dominance persisted as late as 1874, almost a decade after the end of the war, Louisiana, Florida, South Carolina, and Mississippi. 
Uh, in the big three states of Mississippi, South Carolina, and Louisiana, Negro voters were so deeply entrenched that nothing short of a full-scale revolution could dislodge them. Southern Democrats were up to the demands of that hour. The white population organized for war. The Negro population at the same time was systematically disarmed by hook and crook. On any and every pretext, the homes of Negroes were searched and arms were systematically appropriated. By 1876, when Union troops were removed entirely from the southern states, the die was cast. With rare exceptions, the right to vote was quashed for blacks, leading Leron Bennett to conclude in an old issue of Ebony Magazine, soon the Civil War would be sucked of all meaning and would become an agency of reconciliation between the North and South. Preceded by the adoption of the Black Codes, laws that limited black mobility and black legal rights by 1818. Okay. Right. <clears throat> so uh, white supremacists regained control of most of the legislatures in the former states of the Confederacy, and then in a perverse interpretation of the 14th Amendment, the Supreme Court's Plessy versus Ferguson decision found that separate but equal met the test for equal protection under the law. So the system of American apartheid was not deemed officially illegal until passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Political intimidation, witness here. Okay. Uh, click on this. Okay. Aha. Thank you. Uh, Political intimidation, economic exclusion, and the erasure of communities where blacks had attained some measure of affluence were the customary aims of a wave of massacres conducted by whites from the 1870s well into the 1940s. Among the very earliest in the post-Civil War period were the Memphis Riot of 1866, the brutal attacks conducted by the White League in Colfax and Cushada in Louisiana. And in the case of Cushada, Louisiana, uh, we actually had a municipal coup d'etat in which uh, the elected public officials who were affiliated with the Republican Party were systematically executed by the revolutionaries. The white riot in Danville, Virginia, took place in 1883, followed by an even more destructive bloodbath that took place two years after Plessy, the 1898 massacre in Wilmington, North Carolina. Planned in advance and systematically encouraged by white supremacist agitation, the goal of the Wilmington Massacre was the overthrow of the Republican elected municipal government. The plotters were drawn from the best social class of the city's white people, most visibly including Alfred Waddell, a former Confederate Army colonel who installed himself as mayor after the uprising. In all of these cases, local police forces were deeply implicated as agents of violence and extermination directed against blacks. White supremacists who fomented the Atlanta riot that took place in 1906 and led to dozens of black deaths patterned their vigilante assault after the tactics pursued by the conspirators in Wilmington. In 1917, East St. Louis, Illinois was engulfed by destruction and in the aftermath of World War I and the Bolshevik Revolution, the grisly red summer of 1919 witnessed murderous assaults on black communities in dozens of towns and cities, including Elaine, Arkansas, Chicago, Illinois, Washington, D.C., Norfolk, Virginia, Omaha, Omaha, Nebraska, 
Charleston, South Carolina, and Bisbee, Arizona. Perhaps the most horrific massacre took place in Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1921, which resulted in the complete destruction of the prosperous black Greenwood community, a so-called Black Wall Street, and included the dropping of incendiary devices on black homes and businesses. The white riot depicted in the 1997 film Rosewood took place in 1923 in a small town of the same name. But the white violence in Rosewood was only one of many instances in the bloody state of Florida during the first two decades of the 20th century. Murderous assaults by white soldiers attacking black soldiers often took place on military bases and the assaults intensified when black soldiers retaliated by defending themselves. Throughout the 20th century, America was characterized by a long and extensive lynching trail. And uh, th this, this lynching trail, I, I guess the most recent estimates place the number of blacks murdered by white gangs and mobs between 1877 and 1950 at close to 4,000 in the states of Alabama, uh, Arkansas and the remaining states of the old Confederacy. Uh, Kentucky, <coughs> the only one among the states that are included in these estimates where enslaved persons represented less than 25% of, of its overall population, was the only state among these that did not secede from the Union. And these numbers for lynchings of blacks do not include approximately 300 more that took place outside of the South. And then occasionally these lynching frenzies overlapped with the white massacres. For example, 237 blacks were lynched in Elaine, Arkansas during the 1919 white riot. At times, lynchings also were associated directly with the expropriation of black-owned land, and the threat of lynching also created a climate of intimidation that promoted black subordination. Yeah, so in June 20, 13, 2005, the U.S. Senate passed a res resolution apologizing for not passing an anti-lynching bill. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So the ongoing destruction of comparatively affluent black communities no longer is achieved via white riots, but by a more subtle form of violence. First, urban renewal, and second, gentrification. Uh, both processes have been described sarcastically as Negro removal. Black neighborhoods produced under the constraints imposed by white preference for residential segregation often develop stable middle-income communities and black-owned business districts. Nevertheless, these Jim Crow neighborhoods still have been objected, subjected to demolition. For example, and I, I want to elaborate on this particular case because it's, it's quite interesting, it's Memphis, Tennessee. In 1953, Memphis, uh, had a middle-income black community that was declared a slum to justify its demolition, including the symbolically significant burning of the former home of a prominent black community leader named Robert Church at 384 South Lauderdale, uh, South Lauderdale Streets. Uh, the community's black residents had protested this decision to no, ava no avail. Uh, residents beseeched Senator McKellar, their one-time neighbor and a conduit of federal authority, not to wreck this whole section of the city, as one letter put it. The homeowners are sick and distressed beyond measure. 
They wrote that they had toiled for years to pay off their mortgages and fix up their properties, and they'd succeeded in making, in making this the best neighborhood for blacks in Memphis. Their community was more valuable than any relocation funds the city might provide. One of E.H. Boss, Boss Crump's leading black organizers, the Reverend T.O. Fuller, protested, protested that he'd lose his home, workplace, and church. Okay, so Boss Crump was the, uh, the, the mayor of the city. Um, and so even one of his closest allies felt threatened by this, by this set of steps. <coughs> Their grievances, however, were ignored. The Memphis Housing Authority, established in the mid-1930s, part of the wave of local authorities begun under Roosevelt's New Deal, leveled a 46-acre area and replaced the single-family homes with a low-rise, 900-unit public housing complex. The federal interstate program, highway program, also was deployed to situation new freeways that ran through the heart of black communities, disrupting established neighborhoods, displacing residents, and destroying black-owned business districts. Raymond Mole's 2002 report for the Poverty and Race Research Action Council identified city after city, both north and south, east and west, where black communities were shattered by the location and construction of federal highways in their midst. And this is uh, one of the cities in which the black community was bisected by a federal highway, uh, Overtown, Florida. Uh, some of you have seen the, the recent movie that won the uh, Academy Award. Uh, yeah, Moonlight. Well, Moonlight is essentially set in contemporary Overtown. I, I think they refer to it by a slightly different name, but it's the same community. Okay. So here we have uh, the other dimension of this process, which is the use of segregation in public places as a means of maintaining distance and also subjecting blacks to indignities. Uh, I, I think it's a little tricky here to determine whether or not this type of separate water fountain phenomenon is a microaggression or a macroaggression. <laughs> uh, but but let's, let's say that if, if we think of macroaggressions as the form of assaults that threaten life and limb, you're only threatened with life by life and limb if you try to drink at the white water fountain. Okay, so... So maybe we can call this a microaggression, but it's obviously quite severe. And if we think about a cumulative set of these, we can understand how we might have an erosion of spirit and health as a consequence of this. One of the things that we observe today is very, very high rates of hypertension among African Americans. And uh, I think we're increasingly compelled to explain those rates of high hypertension in large part by the degree of racialized stress that blacks are confronted with. And so if we think about the Jim Crow period, that's a period in which there's a paramount level of racialized stress that's being imposed by the operation of the dual social system as well as, and this is what I want to come to next, the dual educational system. So uh, if we think of uh, devaluation of black lives as a direct product of public policy, one of those profound dimensions of, the, of devaluation is the maintenance of separate and unequal schools. The formal structure of Jim Crow 
the formal structure of Jim Crow schooling did not end, and then this the formal structure, until 1954 with the U.S. Supreme Court's Brown versus Board decision. The pursuit of massive resistance to the court's decision by the states of the old Confederacy meant that genuine school desegregation really did not get underway until the early 1970s. Okay. The dual school system ensured racial differences in the quality of school facilities, in teacher compensation per pupil, and in the quality of instructional materials. The magnitude of these disparities first were documented carefully by Horace Mann Bond in his classic study, The Education of the Negro in the American Social Order. And Horace Mann Bond was Julian Bond's daddy, and, so, uh, and, and he was a major scholar uh, who investigated the history of education in the United States. <coughs> in his classic study, he detailed the widespread practice of paying black teachers significantly less than white teachers, Frequently under the dual system, the black-white ratio of teacher salaries was 60% or lower. Nor could these huge disparities in teacher pay be explained fully by differences in teacher training. Economic historian Robert Margo has estimated that both in 1910 and 1940, about 80% of the difference in black and white teacher pay was due to sheer racial differences in compensation established on pay, pay schedules by local white-dominated school boards. This was out-and-out out discrimination. <coughs> school, desegre school segregation also provided an avenue for the systematic fulfillment of the desire expressed by Reconstruction-era white supremacists, President Andrew Johnson, who was probably the worst president America has ever had. Uh, I know there's some competition now, but, uh, but An Andrew Johnson is clearly uh, a, a, a horrible, horrible president. Okay. So uh, Andrew Johnson was, was inclined to uplift the Negro but he wanted to do so in such a way that you maintained a fixed educational gap between blacks and whites. So he said, uh, you know, according to the Cincinnati Enquirer, Johnson wrote to Governor Thomas C. Fletcher of Missouri, this is a country for white men, and by God, as long as I am president, it shall be a government for white men. Now, whether the paper quoted him correctly cannot be determined with certainty, but he did make his racial views perfectly clear to Benjamin B. French, the commissioner of public buildings, in the following statement. Everyone would and must admit that the white race was superior to the black and that while we ought to do our best to bring them up to our present level, that in doing so we should at the same time raise our own intellectual status so that the relative position of the two races will be the same. Okay. Johnson's objective of maintaining relatively inferior education for blacks has been sustained in the post-Brown versus Board era. De facto segregation of schools attributable to school assignment plans and residential segregation, coupled with grossly unequal allocations of resources to black schools, has continued to the present day in many urban areas. And at least as pernicious, pernicious are patterns of within-school segregation that result in the assignment of black students to the least challenging and engaging curricula and instruction. Racialized tracking is the culprit. Indeed, teachers, particularly white teachers who function as the primary gatekeepers in gifted identification programs, are less likely to refer black students for gifted programs than white students with similar levels of academic achievement. 
The persistence of wage and employment discrimination and wealth inequality ensures that America's die are loaded against blacks in two ways. Not only do black Americans have reduced opportunities to obtain quality education, there is also less of a payoff for any credential they earn. At each level of educational attainment, blacks have an unemployment rate two times high, as high as that of whites. Blacks with some college education or an associate's degree typically have a higher unemployment rate than whites who never finished high school. Job prospects for recent black college graduates, including those with degrees in engineering, remain comparatively grim. Racial differences in earnings for MBA recipients from the same schools grow to enormous levels over a short span in time. For example, Black MBAs from the Harvard Business School start their post-degree careers earning $5,000 less than their white peers. Within six to eight years of graduation, the racial pay differential approaches $100,000. Bloomberg data demonstrates that the industry in which pay is most inequitable by race and gender is finance. Tony Business Schools like Harvard's, Columbia's, and the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania send the largest proportion of their graduates to the financial sector. A recent audit study of more than 1,000 positions advertised on a national job search website using racialized names is especially revealing. Despite the fact that a credential from an elite, highly selective university improves the employer response rate, White candidates from less selective schools received as strong a response rate as blacks from more selective schools. In addition, when employers did respond, they offered black candidates lower initial salaries and lower status position than white candidates with comparable or even inferior educational credential. Moreover, blacks with a college degree have a, more, a mere two-thirds of the median net worth held by whites who never finished high school, Blacks who are working full-time have a lower median net worth than whites who are unemployed. <clears throat> so I also want to talk about the abuse of black lives. And, uh, you know, when, when the Black Lives Matter movement came forward, uh, the, the depth of the resonance of that phrase was quite profound for someone like me who had been thinking about the entire historical pattern of the disregard for black lives. Okay? And, and that's the key point. It's, it's, it's not a suggestion that other people's lives don't matter. The point is that historically the United States has treated black lives systematically as if they do not matter. And here's another instance. This instance is associated with the use of black lives for the purposes of medical experimentation. And here we have an image from the uh, notorious Tuskegee experiment where black men were left untreated for syphilis for 40 years so that investigators could, in their words, observe the progression of the disease. And uh, Alondra Nelson well, okay, so, so this is a certificate that was distributed to all the surviving participants in 1958. And even at this stage, uh, where they receive a certificate applauding them for their participation in the project, they still were not told that they had a disease for which they were being observed and not treated. 
So that's by 1958. And then we, we finally have in 1997, President Bill Clinton issuing a formal apology for the Tuskegee study. But of course, uh, it's once again, it's a case of an apology. Uh, remember I said that acknowledgement requires not only the apology, but the commitment to engage in redress. Uh, so, the last thing that I want to make mention of in this context is uh, forced sterilization. So, black families also have been prevented from reproducing by involuntary sterilizations, both officially under state eugenics programs and unofficially by coercive physicians who insist that performing hysterectomies on, hysterectomies on black women who are recipients of welfare payments is fully justified. Eugenic sterilization programs were adopted in 30 states and resulted in the sterilization of upwards of 60,000 persons between the 1930s and 1970s. The states of California and North Carolina in particular disproportionately sterilized their black residents. And in my state of North Carolina, the state eugenics program was not formally ended until 1972. Okay. Uh, the use of involuntary sterilization to curb black fertility also was evident in a pattern. In the 1960s and 1970s of physicians denying black female welfare recipients medical services unless they agreed to have their tubes tied. Uh, so black lives have not mattered in the United States since the end of slavery. And indeed, some people might say that black lives might have been valued a bit more under slavery. American society has marked down the value of black well-being for a century and a half. And I've attempted to share the documentation for many of the aspects of this process of devaluation uh, in, our, in our book, uh, from our book chapter in the conversation today. The catalog of injustices listed here are sufficient for making the case for reparations quite apart from the evil of slavery itself. And the pattern of the elimination of black lives in a direct and physical and violent way continues in the form of police lynchings of blacks. Uh, and, and this is the case of uh, Eric Garner that's depicted here. When the United Nations Working Group of Experts on People of African Descent issued their dramatic report calling for reparations for black Americans in 2016, they emphasized current injustices as well as enslavement and the long-term effects of enslavement. As the Washington Post reported, in particular the, particular, the legacy of colonial history, enslavement, racial subordination and segregation, Racial terrorism and racial inequality in the United States remains a serious challenge, as there has been no real commitment to reparations and to truth and reconciliation for people of African descent, the report stated. Contemporary police killings and the trauma that they create are reminiscent of the past racial terror of lynching. Uh, I would go further. I would say they're exactly analogous to the past racial terror of lynching. Citing the past year's spate of police officers killing unarmed African-American men, the UN panel warned against impunity for state violence, which has created, in its words, a human rights crisis that must be addressed as a matter of urgency. And indeed, uh, the crisis that, uh, that we are continuing to confront in the United States 
is, is not something that has evolved overnight. It has a long and sustained history. It could have been interrupted in Reconstruction by giving blacks full right to political participation in the United States and by providing the ex-slaves with, uh, with, with property throughout the South. Neither of those things took place, and we are reaping the consequences of America's failure to become a true democracy. Okay, so, uh, so the question is, what, what would this look like if we actually inaugurate a reparations program? So I'm going to be a little slippery here because one of the features of our new book is a chapter that's going to detail how we would do a reparations program. So I don't want to give everything away. I, I do want people to try to get the book at some point. Okay. Uh, it's my entrepreneurial instincts kicking in. Okay. So... Um, um, but I, but I can answer the, uh, I can answer at least one of those questions, which is who would be eligible, uh, and this is going to this is going to be somewhat provocative to folks. But uh, uh, I think that eligibility would be contingent on individuals possessing two characteristics. The first characteristic is that they would have to be descended from somebody who had been enslaved in the United States, and the second characteristic is for up to ten years prior to the onset of the reparations program. Uh, they would have had to have self-identified as black, Negro, colored, or African-American. Okay? Uh, and, of course, the, the second condition is one to prevent people from jumping in and declaring that they are, are black once uh, reparations is potentially available to them. Okay, so that's, uh, okay. so, uh, so that's the first thing. So the second question you asked is how much? And uh, there's an immense section of the book that's on the magnitude of how we might estimate uh, a reparations program, but in some of my previous work, I've focused primarily on the question of what is the present value of 40 acres and a mule. And uh, if we were to, if that had been allocated in uh, 1866 or 1865, what would be the equivalent value of that amount of land today? Uh, and that could be a foundation or a, or a jumping off point for constructing a full estimate of what the, uh, the relevant sum of money will be. People frequently say that there's no way you can pay people for the injustices of slavery or the injustices of lynching. But, you know, where there are harms done to other folks in American society, we typically go to the courts and come up with some monetary estimate. And this strikes me as absolutely no different. There should be compensation. Uh, some people argue that this uh, reinforces a victim mentality, but I think that victims never get well until the perpetrators actually acknowledge what they have done to the victims and attempt in some way to compensate them. So. Uh, so actually, I, I view the process of reparations as a mechanism for producing healing. Yeah. Would you say the largest factor for inequality today stems from the lack of a of wealth? Uh, yes. No, that's a great question. The question was, do I see the, the, the largest factor in explaining the kinds of inequalities that we observe today with respect to wealth as the, but, oh, the inequalities generally, 
being associated with the lack of accumulation of wealth? And so my answer is yes. Uh, and, and my answer is yes in particular because uh, I depart from the view that the major source of wealth is, uh, is a series of acts of personal savings. Okay? So I, mean, I think this is the American mythos that you know, most of us generate these uh, uh, substantial sums of wealth by just being very deliberate and precise about our savings activity out of whatever income we get. Uh, the, the, what I think is the primary source of wealth are transfers of resources across generations. Okay, and these intergenerational transfers take a couple of forms. Uh, one is uh, inheritances, where uh, the transfers occur when the donor dies. But the other form is one that we don't think about so much. Uh, in economics, we use the jargon of describing these as in vivo transfers, which is just a fancy way of saying these are transfers that take place while the donors are still living. Uh, another term we could use to describe these are gifts. Okay. And essentially, intergenerational gifts are an important source of the opportunity to accumulate wealth for the next generation. Some examples uh, might be the fact that uh, parents might help their sons and daughters with the expenses associated with their college education. Uh, another might be parents uh, providing their son and daughter on graduation with an automobile. Okay. I'm not sure that that's happened particularly on a frequent basis to UIC students, but I know it happens to Duke students. <laughs> okay. uh, and in addition, uh, you know, parents might assist a son or daughter, or, uh, or, or, or they might assist a son or daughter with, uh, with uh, making the down payment on a home. Or they might even give them a home under some circumstances. So, these are the key ways in which people accumulate wealth is that they start with some foundation that gives them an advantage or a springboard towards the acquisition of additional wealth. Uh, and so, uh, so, so my answer to your question is, if we look at racial differences in wealth, the primary source of those racial differences in wealth is the differential in the capacity of white parents to transfer significant sums of resources to their kids that black parents are not able to do. And the reason why black parents are not able to do it is embedded fully in the conversation that I just had with you about what has happened historically in the United States. Mark? Okay. Okay. So, so the 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 narrative that many people have about wealth accumulation is, uh, you you get additional education. That will lead you to have a higher income, and that makes it possible for you to save more, and therefore you can have a higher level of wealth. Okay. Well, I, I'm not going to deny that that path is not there but it's not a very important path in terms of the accumulation of significant amounts of wealth. And one of the statistics that I shared with you earlier is, is, is one that I think really reinforces the limitations of that path. Uh, and that statistic is the one where I said that blacks with a college degree typically have two-thirds of the net worth of whites who never finished high school. And, uh, and that two-thirds is, 
is approximately uh, $20,000, where the white net worth for non-high school graduates at the median is $30,000. So it's a $10,000 differential between folks who have college degrees and folks who never completed high school. And I think that that's a real demonstration of the phenomenon of racial privilege also. Uh, people frequently ask, well, why does the white working class not defect and side with the black masses? Well, this is one reason, that there are certain concrete and material advantages to being white. And the other one that's really significant is in terms of your interaction with the police. Okay. So... Uh, uh, so so, so uh, these kinds of wealth differentials that exist despite relatively high levels of educational attainment on the part of blacks are indicative of why the, the uh, human capital to savings story really is not an adequate one.